Hello, everyone. Welcome to the binary half of the podcast for this week. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. Before we get into topics and our Spot the Ball challenge, uh, for those who didn't catch yesterday's episode, we had Bastian Gruber on as a guest yesterday who talked about his upcoming book on Rust and the Web. And we are doing a giveaway for that book as a digital copy, which is running all week. Um, so if you're interested in that, head to our Discord and check out the giveaways channel, and you can react with the zero day icon to enter or with the Ferris icon if you know you like Rust memes. Um, they also gave us a coupon code for our community that'll give us um, 30% off on Manning Publishing Store. Um, and that coupon code you can find in Twitch with the coupon command. But um, yeah, I just wanted to shout that out really quick, just for people who might have missed that and might be interested. Uh, oh, okay, Z beat me to the command. But yeah, the coupon code for those listening is PODDAY021. So yeah, just wanted to shout that out. Uh, and with that oh, out of one the way, word in lowercase. Yeah, good clarification. Twenty-one uh, and yeah. is numbers <laughs> for those listening. Uh, with that out of the way, uh, we'll cover our Rust spot the bomb challenge this week, uh, and then we'll get into some news and exploits. So, see, go ahead. Yeah, this week's spot the ball, and I figured since we had a guest on talking about Rust, I'd try and find a Rust vault. Um, I didn't write this code. This was actually in. Rust sack, I think it was. Um, it was found there. Uh, we actually talked. So there was a paper that did a study about memory bugs in Rust. Um, and we covered it on episode 41. And this was one of the vulnerabilities from it. Uh, so if you want us, if you want to hear us talk a little bit more about this, probably go reference that. We only talked about that paper for maybe five minutes or so in that episode. So there isn't a lot, but the paper does a decent job of laying out vulnerabilities uh so anyway the issue with this one obviously you see them jumping down to using an unsafe pointer which is a clear sign that something might go wrong um so that unsafe pointer is that p which comes from match data uh so you've got the match that are going on if it, if it has some data it's going to create this bio slice um basically assigning p equal to the bio slice as a pointer using the raw pointer there Problem being that the data object that it's using, that falls out of scope as soon as that match statement ends, which means it gets freed at that point. Uh, so when the unsave code comes along, it's operating on already freed memory. This is just a lifetime issue. It is kind of Rust specific in terms of its automated freeing of stuff um, without garbage collection. Uh, yeah, just kind of a standard lifetime issue, and one of those things that, you know, it's a little bit easier to spot just because you've got the unsafe, but you do need to be aware of how Rust works. We just had to capitalize on the uh, the Rust secure meme, you know? So, yeah, I mean, this this was a cool challenge. Um, I, This is the first Rust challenge we've ever put out, right? Like, even during the PS4 streams earlier this year, I don't think we had any Rust-based ones. Yeah, yeah, I'm not so. confident in Rust enough to kind of write some of the challenges, so yeah, like like I said, this one I did take from elsewhere. Somebody else kind of did the heavy lifting on that. Yeah, good to switch it up a bit, though. Um, you know, seeing something a bit different and spot the bones, so yeah, cool challenge. Alright, so uh, North Korea is back at it again with uh, coming after security researchers. Uh, this made pretty big news coming out of um, ESET, 
Um, the Lazarus APT group created an IDA Pro installer, presumably like pirated or whereas version um, that bundled malicious DLLs with it. It would install this win firmware uh, .dll component in the temp directory, which would then launch a second stage payload in IDA helper, um, which was in the plugins directory through a scheduled task. And then it would reach out to an attacker URL for next instructions. Um, now it's kind of funny because there's been some speculation in the past, at least on there being some backdoored IDA versions floating around for a while. And obviously that is a risk that you run when dealing with pirated or unofficial installers. Um, but I believe this is the first time it's been publicly proven in Ida's case. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that I've seen discussion around before and people have, you know, people who have resorted to pirated Ida versions have, you know, installed them in VMs specifically to avoid this kind of issue. Um, so yeah, I, I think North Korea was a little bit late on that bandwagon, but they did it. And, you know, it does make sense as a target. I mean, if you're targeting security researchers and want to try to steal zero days or whatever, um, can't think of many better things to target than IDA. Uh, it's very useful software that's used a lot in security research. It's extremely expensive and thus a prime target for pirating and, and using unofficial versions. Um, and it's not something that'll give you a lot of noise or useless compromises, right? If someone has IDA installed and they're installing your backdoor IDA, they're probably doing at least something interesting in security research, more than likely. So, yeah, I mean, makes sense Maybe. as a target. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people who gain, um, I think, because on the professional side of things, most companies that are like professionally doing any sort of reverse engineering that would be wanting this they're probably going to be able to just afford to pay for the license. Um, like, yes, Ida's expensive, but compared with, you know, if they're doing RE for exploit dev, compared with the payouts on exploits, like, Ida's not that expensive in comparison to that. So it is going to be maybe more of a um, hobbyist target uh, rather than the I guess juicier targets that we've seen North Korea targeting with some of their past stuff. Oh, no, I just I thought know. it was interesting though to bring up that it happened again. <laughs> For an independent security researcher, it is still kind of hard to justify the cost of Ida Pro plus the decompiler licenses. I mean, when you start talking about the common architectures, the decompiler license, the Ida Pro base, you're talking like nine to ten thousand dollars. So you're right. Yeah, like for but companies, I mean... it's it's not really this probably isn't really going to impact too much there. On independent researchers, I think there is more of an impact because I think there might be more people running pirated IDA than Oh, you there might are think. plenty of people running pirated IDA. Where I draw the question though is on how valuable what they're working on is. Um you know, because I mean, I could imagine there's going to be plenty of people doing, say, malware research who, are, who might true. do that, who are just, you know, plenty of people out like kind of more beginner, I or more beginner reverse engineering that aren't doing anything really sensitive or really that North Korea is going to be interested in. Um, when it comes down to like in a lot of use cases where Ida would be used professionally, they're going to be making. They're probably going to be making more than enough money to also cover 
the license for Ida because in comparison, like a lot of that is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Obviously, I'm in like a one shot over time, it's worth plenty more. So like ten thousand dollars on Ida is no big deal. Um I don't know. I mean it's definitely a fair target. It makes sense. Like I'm not questioning any of that. And there's definitely going to be people who maybe would be running a pirated Ida who are working on something or do fi- do have, you know, a finding of value, but I I'm not sure what the noise level would be on it, as you suggested. Yeah, I guess the other area that Ida would be used pretty heavily for is, like, game research and, and Cheeto development, which I would assume oh, yeah, North too. Korea doesn't care about too much, but uh, you never know, maybe. <laughs> never know in North Korea, but... Well, yeah. I mean, they are always trying to make money. Um, I, I, know, yeah. So Pay maybe they'll start entering gaming tournaments. <laughs> there you go. Um, that said, I, this is probably a good time to mention... Ida Free, uh, last year, I believe, had a huge improvement. I can't remember if it was last year or this year. This year has been so weird. I, I lose track of time so much this year. It's kind well, of Well, I remember by, we but... covered um, uh, one of the free decompiler- decompilers earlier this year. Okay, so it might have been the beginning of this year. But um, yeah, nonetheless, Ida, Ida Free had a big change made to it where you basically get x86 decompilation for free now through their cloud decompiler, which some people are a bit concerned about, you know, it's not private, it is going to the cloud. But for most people, um, there is no use, there is no reason really to be using a pirated IDA copy over IDA free anymore. Um, and if you really need decompilation for arcs other than x86, Ghidra is already pretty strong there. Um, if I remember correctly, like there were some people saying that on some of the other architectures like PPC and stuff. Um, I can't remember if, if it was true for ARM, but um, Ghidra was better in some aspects with decompilation. So, yeah, I mean, with some of the other options that are out there now, I think pirated IDA is it's just not worth it to run it at this point. Uh, a couple of years ago, it maybe would have been a more interesting target. But now, I just can't see any reason why anybody would want to run pirated IDA. Um, it's just a risk that is not worth taking. Um, the Ida Free is just such a uh, such a much better offering now than it used to be. Um, so I almost feel North Korea was a bit late on that bandwagon because, at least from what I observed, maybe um, they've been on it longer Ida than seem to disappear know. quite a bit. What's that? Maybe they've been on it longer than we know. I mean, yeah, could be. Um, when you're talking about these, you know, campaigns from from state actors, it's there's a lot of missing pieces and information by design that you're not going to have, so we can only speculate. But yeah, I mean, given that North Korea has been ramping up, like hasn't ramped up for too long against security researchers, like that just started towards the end of last year when they targeted uh, Chrome and they they tried to get ins with, with researchers and DMs and stuff. Uh, given that that campaign wasn't documented before that, I'm I'm guessing this isn't, like this hasn't been going on for too long, but that's no, just a I, I'd agree. Guess. I'm just tossing it out there as we don't necessarily know how long. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to shout that out. Like, if you're using pirated Ida, it's probably just not worth doing it. Just switch to Ida free. <laughs> like, um, I mean, at this point, I really feel like if you're using pirated Ida, just switch to something else. Like, there are better options than Ida now. That too. 
five, yeah. six years ago, before Ghidra, before Binja, um, you know, your your other option was like Snowball or Snowman or whatever that decompiler. Actually, I don't even remember when that was released. It might have been might might have been less than five years ago, but um, but yeah. Every time I, mean, I hear of Snowman decompiler, I think of the bleeding eyes meme that we have in the Reverse Engineering <laughs> Discord because <laughs> it's just so bad. But yeah, like you said, there's just so many other options out there. So hopefully this isn't hitting too many people. But like you said, it happens. So we did want to cover it. Um, we have a story with a bit of drama around it this week. Uh, this is a blog post from Randori, which I believe is like a pen testing uh, type firm um, that defends their use of zero days in security assessments um, and don't disclose them to vendors. Uh, their philosophy there being Companies have to face threats from the real world all the time, which will include zero-day exploits, and it's hard to test for resilience against zero days without using them uh, or, or using them for testing, uh, which is an interesting take, I guess, because it is kind of true. Um, while end days are more likely to be used and tried first, um, it's very possible that your company or individual could be targeted using a zero-day attack chain. And for testing last-line defenses and stuff, um, I could see that maybe being of some value, but it has kind of sparked this debate or, well, it's more well, of a so, one-sided debate. I've seen a lot of people coming down against this company and this, you know, so, philosophy. So in but... fairness, I do want to correct one thing that you said. They do yep. disclose to the vendors. They just don't disclose immediately. So where right. I first came across this was they had another post. Um this was their zero-day disclosure, CV against uh, El Palo Alto Networks Global Protect VPN. Um, and the timeline on that was they discovered this in 2020 in October and November. And then they reported it in September and October of 2021. Um, so they had two vulnerabilities and they were reported close to a year later. Um, so it's that gap in reporting that people are kind of coming at them over. And, I mean, I get where they're coming from in the sense of zero days. Like, it's hard to test the resilience against that. At the same time, if you wanted to set up a red team engagement that... So, first of all, this is also the difference between, like, a red team engagement versus a pen test. Pen test, you're looking for vulnerabilities, you're scanning for vulnerabilities um, in, like, the software running and the configurations, all of that. Whereas a red team is an adversarial type of engagement. You, you're supposed to be testing the blue team or the defense. Um, there should be something active against you on that. So, just kind of as a little point of clarification there on the difference. Um, when it comes to a red team, like it does kind of make sense, but this can also be done artificially, uh, such as giving attackers a foothold to see how your defensive team actually responds to suddenly having this traffic or malicious traffic from inside the network. Like there are ways to go about having this sort of stuff, or even just having some introduced vulnerabilities. Um, although that would have its own thing. Um, it would have to be done kind of carefully, <laughs> uh, not just introducing like a random SQL I on path on a password check or something. Um, so I I get where the idea of having this sort of engagement comes from, 
I'm not sure I really like their methodology here, though, of just not disclosing. It feels like, you know, either you should be disclosing the issues, or, you know, if you're going to sell it, fine. I mean, we've kind of discussed ethics and all that around that before. Um, you know, if, if you want to play that game, fine. I, you know, whatever. But when it comes to this, like, it's a very weird middle ground that I just, I don't feel like it's as defensible. Even though they're reporting it, they are taking that period of time. Uh, just yeah. kind of using it kind of for, like, I mean, in, in a sense, you could break it down to this is just, they're using the Odes they found for their own profit. So, you know, how is that different than selling it? Um. So yeah, I mean, like you said, we we've talked about like responsible disclosure and disclosing to vendors versus other parties a bit before, but this one's in that middle area of using it somewhat defensively, but also kind of screwing over the vendor in the process, or that's how it's being seen anyway. Um. So like to highlight my stance on zero days a little bit, my thought has always kind of been: if you find a zero day, it's up to you what you do with it. As long as it's legal, you know, you're not using it to steal credit cards or something, then in my opinion, it's not really other people's business necessarily what you do with that bug. Um, if you choose to disclose it to the vendor, awesome. If not, whatever, that's your choice. And that is what they're doing here, right? They're using it in their own best interest on security assessments. Um, so I guess along that lines, I'm kind of in the camp on the other side of a lot of the people who are upset and, you know, calling for heads to roll a little bit in the blog post. Um but Z, I know you kind of have a bit of an angle on this too, where you think it's a, it's a little more. There's a bit more nuance there than just like you found it, you do what you want with it. Um, so I'll let you elaborate on that a bit. Well, I mean, it kind of just comes down to I feel like their use case isn't a good, in my it's opinion, a fair justifiable reason for holding back on the vulnerabilities. Um, like I said, if you want to get into the game of selling them, fine. I mean, you can deal with that kind of ethics. You know, however you stand on that, people have different opinions. Fine. I don't want to quite go there. And then on the other side, always reporting. There, because it's in that middle ground where you can recreate this scenario. It's not like you need to use O-Days in order to test the blue team. And how they handle O-Days popping up. Um, you can simulate that. And there are plenty of red team engagements that do simulate that. Um, maybe not exactly the same. Because there are going to be differences. Whether you're talking about introducing a vulnerability. Or just giving the red team access that they can use. Um, and then. Because you know, the other option is you just have a um, an engagement of a internal assessment where somebody is inside the network either given a single box or given like a employee access that's its own type of engagement also like you can test the blue team in this way without holding back on the vulnerabilities i get where they're coming from so like i i don't think head should roll i think they, they obviously have a different opinion here i don't feel like they have like they haven't presented a strong defense of it in my opinion here Maybe they could say more 
about it kind of within the paper and uh amy and chad asked are they providing patches to the clients that use it on as far as i know they are not but i do not know for sure and can't make any definitive claim there oh they only kind of prevent this as uh, we pro- actually, I guess I'll quote it here. We provide our customers with a highly realistic experience from reconnaissance to compromise to actions on objectives. Uh, that's what they offer. So it sounds like they're using it more on the offensive side. My and... guess is they use it to get a foothold, but they probably don't tell the client about it because if they did, that client would probably forward that up to the vendor or something, right? Uh, that's probably a risk that they don't really want to take. So we don't know for sure, but I would assume that they just use it in kind of like a black box context where it's like, we got this foothold and we were able to do this. Um, here's some remediation steps, but like, we're not going to tell you how we got that foothold. That That's yeah, what I, I would assume is going on there. I mean, with the red team engagements, big part of testing is the blue team response. It's not supposed to like uncover all the vulnerabilities. Like with a pen test, you do more scanning. You're looking for issues across the system. Uh, red team, you're testing the blue team. It's that adversarial engagement. Uh, you know, I just I like that term today, I guess. <laughs> but it it's that sort of setup. So like, it's not really about uncovering all the vulnerabilities. So it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't, or they leave that as the blue team needs to be to find it or figure it out, and that's yet another test. On the other hand, they don't say that here. A lot of companies don't. What if they were actually selling vulnerabilities and also disclose them uh, about a year later? Suddenly, like, and I just had this thought, it's like suddenly, like, the argument that I've just made, like, kind of changes the metric a little bit because they are playing both games then. Yeah, that's a little bit different because it, it, it feels like you're double it. dipping there. Um, you're double dipping by getting the sale and then also getting the credit for disclosing it. Like it's kind of yeah, that's that's a but, bit more. I mean, it, area, in I a think. sense, they're improving security because of it. Um, they're disclosing it. They're giving it. You know, obviously, any sort of sale of that sort, uh, the contract would have to allow such a disclosure, which. Feels unlikely to me. It would bring the prices down almost certainly. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a case that's not really going to happen, except for like maybe really rare and weird circumstances. But at the same time, I could completely see something like that being the case here, and they're just not admitting to that other half of it. It, it just feels so weird to me. Oh, um, yeah. Just, you know, because of the cost. I mean, I guess I'd have to look back over what all they found issues in. Oh, maybe, you know, they are some lower hanging fruit or whatever. But I mean, it's not like Palo Alto's stuff is that. Like, it's widespread. It's not like just some random, random little piece of software. So, I don't know. I Like I said, I just kind of had that thought. So, I was talking here as, like, some that might shift my opinion a little bit. Oh, yeah, I mean, where we can't like know that though, I, I don't want to, yeah, like, come that's... down too hard on that because yeah, we that's like pure speculation. If we take it at face value though, like ultimately what it comes down to is, is it worth it to not report it to the vendor for a while 
and leave other people or companies potentially exposed to test your client's resilience in zero days. And I feel like that's there's not really a solid answer you can point to to that. It's going to depend on the context of you know the clients you're testing, what kind of things you're testing, um, and just your opinion on that of, of whether or not it's worth it. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say that you don't agree with the justification of it. Um, but I think if you start trying to regulate or, you know, try to put in some rules or something about what researchers and research companies can and can't do with zero days, you enter into a zone where it gets really slippery and you are going to step on a lot of toes. Um, yeah, so it's just I, not, not a good area to enter into. Yeah, I, I'm definitely not trying to suggest that. Like, I think it, they're absolutely welcome to do this. I, I'm more just looking at, you know, what are my, like, I guess, ethical considerations on it? Um, and my own thoughts on the justification. It, but it is their finding. And as long as you're willing to accept the idea of sales, like, this is, this is at least, like, at least they're disclosing it here. Um, they're profiting off of their effort and then disclosing it. I, yeah, so I to be clear, like, I can't complain I, I about that your... one. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I understood your stance. Um, I, I just say that because a lot of the stuff I saw on social media was coming um, down to more of what I was saying earlier with, you know, the heads rolling and like, you shouldn't use bugs like this and whatever. Like, th there was a lot of moral grandstanding on that. And I, it's just, yeah, no, I get that. It is position kind of annoying too. to see. Oh, um, yeah. Like, if, if you take the position that, like, if you're against the sale of vulnerabilities to government and the use within the intelligence system. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, you can make a very clear claim on this and that is a justifiable position. Oh, I, I think, you know, I, I think the ethics of that get a lot more complex. Oh, when it comes to like military and uh, intelligence use. Or really just, any sort of, we'll say, gray market uses. Oh, but ultimately, like, if if you if you come down on the other side of that, as you shouldn't do it, it is kind of easy to, as you just said, morally grandstanding over this issue. Because I mean, it is just an easy case of it should have been disclosed. If that is where you stand, it is kind of an easy case. Um, I just think there's more nuance. Yeah, I think there's a lot of nuance here that's not really being appreciated. Um, and yeah, like IPR said in chat, like, um, if you, okay, actually, I was going to say I, I kind of agree, but um, he elaborates a little bit more here. So um, in my opinion, if you're an independent researcher, your findings are yours to do with them what you want. But if you're a company that claims to be for security, you're actively contributing to making everyone unsafer by not disclosing. So yeah, I guess it it's kind of down to how you present yourself, right? If you present your company or even yourself as like a pure, I'm trying to benefit security as a whole on the defensive side, then yes, I can kind of see how this would be problematic. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's a fair angle to take. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I kind of come down with the first half of what you said with like your findings are yours to do with what you want. Um, it is fair though to call out like if you're gonna present yourself as altruistic, then you should you know follow that and you know to practice what you preach kind of. Yeah, and I mean it's not that they are 
I mean, maybe I should dig into the company themselves a little bit more. Um, but from what I've seen, they don't claim to be like altruistic and all for like defensive security. So I, I don't think that's like a fair argument to bring up in this case. But generally, yeah, that's a fair point. I I mean, yeah, it's. I'd have to look more at what this company actually claims. I mean, if you are, like, if you are a company, it's very much just a double-faced position if you're all about security and talking about that, and then behind the scenes, you know, that's kind of your methodology. That that does feel a little bit more double-faced, and I have to look this... They are a security company, so in a sense, I could see that just kind of being implied that, you know, security company thus taking the ethically superior route. Uh, after all I've just said about ethics, it's maybe not the best way to phrase it, but yeah, I mean, that it's, it's a good point. Yeah, that said, I don't think we have too much more to add there. I mean, really what it comes down to is I just don't want... Um, I don't like this idea that people think they should be able to regulate what other people do with their stuff. It's it's kind of it's kind of a bad take, in my opinion, to suggest that they you know they absolutely should have disclosed this to the vendor. You know, it's it's up to them. And yeah, there there has been some interesting discussions off of it, but a lot of it has been that kind of you know one sided uh, altruism. So yeah, with that said, though, we can we can move on. Um, next for news, DDR4 was uh, blown open, in quotes. Um, the ComSec Research Group at F Zurich. Um, I probably said that wrong. You know, <laughs> German stuff is hard. Or is there? No, sorry. Zurich is... Um, that's Switzerland, right? Yeah, Switzerland. <laughs> sorry, my geography is terrible. Um, so yeah, um, F Zurich. Um, this came out of uh, that university. Uh, they managed to demonstrate a reliable row hammer attack against all DDR4 uh, memory devices. For those unfamiliar, a uh, simplified version of row hammer is basically this idea of, well, hammering rows of memory cells with a bunch of memory accesses to try to trigger bit flips in nearby cells um, through causing voltage fluctuations. It's an attack that relies on ideas from electrical engineering and how close together the RAM cells are. Um, one of the big things that came since the original Rowhammer attacks from all those years ago was Target Row Refresh, or TRR, which is a set of mitigations that do things like uh, track the number of activations per row to set a threshold for the max activate count. Um, basically, it's like a watchdog on memory accesses and tries to detect, is there something fishy going on here? If there is, um, you know, force a refresh or whatever. Um, now, this same group detailed an attack last year called Trespass, which we actually covered on the show on episode 33 when we were still doing numbered episodes, um, which also worked against DDR4. But that one was only on about 30% of devices. Um, Trespass was based on the idea of abusing the limitations of TRR, um, like the number of rows that it can protect at one time and the number of rows that can be refreshed at one time. So they were kind of brute forcing and abusing those limits to sneak in bit flips somewhere else. Um, that was actually, that was a cool set of attacks on a paper, but like I said, it was pretty isolated um, to, you know, 30% or 31% of the devices they tested. This one is a little bit more complicated um, and it has to do with the access patterns on the cells. Um, previous row hammer attacks used 
fairly uniform patterns of accesses for their attacks, like single-sided or double-sided or whatever, um, these researchers were interested in non-uniform patterns and discovered factors that, like uh, order, regularity, and intensity of accessing the aggressor rows are the essential elements for bypassing uh, target row refresh. Um, and they said this observation matches nicely with common parameters of frequency, um, being like frequency, phase, and amplitude. So what they did here was they took those parameters and they essentially designed a fuzzer called Blacksmith um, that would explore use of non-uniform patterns that would bypass TRR on any given device. Um, they tested this research against 40 different uh, DDR4 devices from major memory, memory manufacturers, including Samsung, Micro, Esky Hynix, um, and others that didn't in indicate the manufacturer. Um, and they managed to trigger bit flips and a large number of them on all 40 devices within 12, 12 hours of buzzing. Um, they also demonstrated how this could be used in by targeting the page table entries or attacking RSA 2048 public keys for authentication um, and just some other things like password verification in the pseudoers library, just demonstrating how Rowhammer could be exploited in a useful way. But yeah, I mean, too long didn't read of the story is DDR4 is now vulnerable to Rowhammer uh, across the board, it would seem. Um, it is worth noting, Rowhammer is an attack that is difficult to pull off in realistic scenarios. Uh, for one thing, you need a good deal of control over memory on the target, and you need a lot of time and CPU power to do it. Um, even then, you need to flip just the right bits at just the right time, or you either won't be able to do anything useful, or you'll cause a crash. So it's not really an ideal attack in terms of stealth or reliability. It's pretty noisy if you're, you know, if you know what to look for. And it's just, it's somewhat unreliable. So if you're going to get attacked, it's probably not going to be through Rowhammer. It's probably going to be through software. Um, there's, there's a lot easier ways to hit somebody than using something like Rowhammer. It kind of falls into the same class as speculative execution attacks. Um, you know, they're there, it's possible, but it's going to be really difficult to really take advantage of it as an attacker. Um, but hey, it's still an attack, and since it's against hardware, there's not a lot you can do to mitigate it from software. Um, I mean, that's also one of the things, though, that makes it at least a fair option, is the fact that it's hardware, it's everywhere, it's not something that you can patch out just, you know, a software update, so it's going to stick around for a while. And thus, yes, there are some weaknesses to it, um, do need a reasonable degree of access, but I, we've seen, like, Rowhammer used for, uh, like, privilege escalations, um, like a lot of phones using that, so, uh, definitely on, like, the, uh, jailbreaks, I could imagine some use there, uh, depending on the device and stuff. Um, yeah, in certain contexts, when you are trying to hit, um, you know, a system that's hostile towards research or something, like it, it, it's a lot more useful in those cases. And I guess Bill Farty of chat mentions uh, this would be more useful bringing down industrial production machines, more than likely. I mean, especially given lack of updates on those, like, they are kind of infamously insecure um, it, from a software standpoint, but this would kind of be a consistent option where you likely do have, you know, the time, uh, 
if if you happen to be going for one of the attacks that needs a significant chunk of time. Yeah, fair, fair point. Yeah, I guess the scenario lines up for using it against like IoT or whatever, but the problem is because IoT is so garbage on the software side, um, it's well, not just IoT, way easier to hit it. Well, kind of IoT, maybe not really. Industrial production is more. Yeah, I kind of blend ICS and IoT into kind of the same category. Maybe I should insecure, but yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, but. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, there. there's probably just so many other options that are easier. Um, but, I mean, the consistency is a valid argument, too. So, maybe it could be used there, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see some attacks coming out from this. I mean, it just comes down to the creativity of the research and how they're going to leverage it. I mean, I definitely don't want to um, just sit back and say, no, we won't see it there. I mean, there's going to be some... I'm sure we'll see some creative uses with it and some decent attacks out of it. Yeah, so I'm not saying we won't see it and it won't ever be used in a practical context, but um, I did want to bring up some of the limitations and you know nuances of it because whenever there's one of these big attacks and named attacks, um, you know it's, the media always runs with it like, oh, everyone's vulnerable, we're screwed. <laughs> you know? It's uh, and and in in reality, like you probably don't have much to worry about with Rowhammer. Um, you know, it is a potential concern. You should be aware of it, but because it's attacking the hardware, and like I said, there's not much you can do to mitigate from software side. Um, there's not a whole lot you can do about it anyway. And most likely, if you're going to be attacked, it's going to be through an easier vector. Um, yeah, and I now will also thing... show, like, you know, ECC as, like, uh, obviously we don't get that a lot. Um, a lot of consumer hardware has not had it. Would be nice if more, you know, non, I guess, I guess I'd say more like it, it comes in more like the prosumer workstation level or servers are more likely to have it, but you know, yeah, it would be nice. Although apparently somebody might be able to correct me if I'm wrong here. DDR5, all of them will have a ECC. So I was just about to bring this up. Um, DDR5, um, all DIMMs will have on-die ECC. So that's been one of the big selling points of DDR5. And it's it's something I wanted to bring up here is like we have there has been some Rowhammer attacks that have um kind of bypassed ECC before. So I, I'd be interested to see how this research carries forward into DDR5. But where DDR5 is so new, um, you know, it's probably gonna take a good deal of time before we you know, hear anything about that. But um, yeah, that has been one of the big debates that has spawned from this research is, you know, the ECC debate. Um, and thankfully, you know, it, it has been kind of pushed with DDR5. CPU manufacturers have been forced to support it because that's where it's been so weird for so long. Like I remember Linus had some posts on the mailing list. Um, that's the Linus Torvalds Linux kernel. Um, he had some stuff saying like he was specifically calling out Intel because Intel was really re reluctant on providing like ECC support for consumer uh, CPUs. Yeah, um, I mean, and Intel... AMD has never officially supported it on like the desktop line, like the non, uh, you know, 
non-epic cpus but it has supported it it's just not like official and it might be a bit shaky but they at least try to support it whereas intel for a while was like yeah we're just not doing that <laughs> um, out of chat we did have one question here again from uh bill farty uh did the ram have to be clocked at a certain level for this to occur if you clock your ram slower would that mitigate this um i don't believe so yeah, I don't think anything was called out, but I don't think anything was called out about that on the other side that they even tested it. Um, they did test across multiple uh, RAM speeds, but not, like, underclocking. Oh. I want to say that I've seen clock speed mentioned in the context of the refreshes before. Um and yeah, in that I'm actually way, like, I think back that decreasing the, the clock speed, yeah, exactly, yeah. I think that decreasing the clock speed might actually make it easier to hit because your refresh rate would be uh, severely impacted there. So, yeah, I don't know enough about the hardware to comment confidently on what kind of impact the refresh rate, or, yeah, like the refresh rate would have there. I imagine it would be a factor in terms of like how reliable it is and whatever but i can't really speak on how much of a factor um but given the fact that it like they tested it against so many devices um assumingly those devices probably had different refresh rates although if they were running at jdex standard that wouldn't matter but i would assume this probably works like agnostic of the refresh rate but it's an interesting I could question see why um having a slower refresh rate though could could make a difference here it, yeah it's a great question i don't have the answer to it oh um, yeah it's unfortunate it's a really good question but it's it's hard to answer um and unfortunately like i i just took a quick look it doesn't really seem like they they talk about it at all um yeah well they they kind of do uh, they have this section what if my system runs with a double refresh rate um, and they say, besides an increased performance overhead and power consumption, previous work showed uh, that doubling the refresh rate is a weak solution, not providing complete protection. So it seems what they're implying there is like it might help a little bit in terms of making it a bit less reliable to exploit Rohammer, but it's not going to save you. Um, it'll just make it a little bit more annoying to to abuse it. So, but that's the only place where I really see them mention the uh the refresh rate so yeah i mean we can't go too much into detail on the attack beyond the kind of surface level uh thing i got from their uh their post here because like i said it deals with like electrical engineering and some really complex stuff um but still i mean it's it's pretty significant to be able to compromise ddr4 across the board with rohammer like that um ram is one of those components where you're not going to see a lot of variants. The same thing is going to be used pretty much everywhere because it has to be standardized. So it's a, it's a good target for that. All right. So uh, I guess we'll move into some of our exploits for this week. Uh, we'll start off with uh, a report from Thallium that details uh, fuzzing of Microsoft's RDP or remote desktop protocol and some bones that were found there. Uh, the report goes into some background on RDP and its components for sending bitmaps and and inputs and whatnot back and forth. Um, the main mechanism that's used for everything is virtual channels, which 
is like their medium for RPC, basically. Um, so each channel has its own logic and protocol for whatever it's supposed to do, like clipboard functionality, GDI, audio, you know, whatever. Um, there's a bunch of different services, um, you could call them, that are running there. Um, the RDP stack is pretty complicated. So Windows provides an API for interacting with it called the WTS API. Uh, the reason I mentioned that is because they leverage that for writing their fuzzing harness. That way they don't have to deal with all the low level layers of the protocol. Yeah, and I'll um, also mention like in addition to some background on mostly on virtual channels, um not a like I mean obviously it gives you a bit on RDP too by connection, but it's definitely focused. Um they also go along to their fuzzing, which I thought had some value here in terms of their struggle getting the fuzzer working. One of the bugs they initially kind of ignored, thinking it was their fault and not a bug in the software um, that the fuzzer was finding and hitting. Um, I, I thought it was a good post in that sense, especially, you know, just commiserate a little bit with some of the issues that, that they had. The findings yes. themselves, maybe... So the ones detailed here aren't that interesting. They did potentially find some other ones that are a little bit more interesting, but haven't documented them yet. They're going to be in some separate posts. Uh, yeah. But I think there's some decent value just in reading kind of their struggle and their process here a little bit, like especially in the fuzzer. And, and so it's basically the fuzzing section and down through the actual issues that they found where they talk about that. Um, I as a background, I mean, there's it has some stuff for, uh, the RDP virtual channels, but I think most of the value comes out of just the shared experience out of buzzing. Yeah, so like you said, they they then go into a good bit of detail on their fuzzing setup, which um they leverage Win AFL and use Dynamo Rio, uh, which is a dynamic binary instrumentation framework for inserting coverage instrumentation. Um, so basically they leverage WinAFL and, and that dynamic uh, rewriting. Um, and then they started fuzzing the RDP services. Um, they go into the background there on the challenges they encountered and the solutions um, that they had to come up with. Um, things like stabilizing the code coverage instrumentation and getting WinAFL configured properly. Uh, there is a lot of cool information and, and diagrams and stuff there related to the fuzzing. I don't think we're going to cover much of that here since it's somewhat specific and might be a little bit of a dry read unless you're specifically interested in that kind of fuzzing setup. But yeah, I mean, ultimately the fuzzer ended up finding some issues. Um, it found some DOS issues and four CVEs, two of which are undisclosed as of yet, and the other two were in FreeRDP, which weren't detailed because FreeRDP isn't the Microsoft client. It's like an open source alternative. And the author says they weren't really that interesting anyway. Yeah, um, I guess we should mention also that they were fuzzing specifically the RDP client. Um, something that's kind of notable here because often, you know, the more interesting target for a lot of people is going to be the server. You know, a server's running RDP, being able to compromise the server. In this case, they're looking at being a malicious server compromising uh the rdp client yeah kind of like uh the situation you see in games um with like a, a bad server hitting clients so yeah unfortunately we only have details on the dos bugs um the first of which was an out of bounds read in the channel for tra transporting audio um this user control parameter being the w format number um used for pointer arithmetic 
for getting the target format can be used without proper validation. You do have to be a bit creative to take advantage of that because it will check the format number against the last format number, I believe, and perform validation if it doesn't match. But you can swap out the supported audio formats between messages, so that allows this bug to still work out. So um, I do want to go a little bit more into that a little bit. Um, okay, go ahead. Because I thought that I actually thought that was kind of a fun little trick. I mean, it's very specific to RDP, so you're not really necessarily going to be able to copy that. Um, but yeah, so the server, or sorry, so when you send messages through, it does check to make sure the last format number is, well, if the format number changes, that's basically specifying, you know, what the audio format and uses. If that changes, then it will end up calling this on new format and does this whole thing there. And there is checking there, which makes sure that the format number is valid. So in theory, you can't set that last format number to something invalid because on new format should catch it. Um, and then as you said, they were able to, the server would post, here's all the formats I support. Um, so you could send that message, send one message using that to get the last format number uh, set. Uh, so it would pass uh, the check there. Uh, sorry, I guess if you're not watching, it would pass the check where it calls on new format. If that airs out because it was a bad format number, um, it just exits there. Or uh, looking at their code, they just have a comment air exit. I assume it would actually exit and it's not just a comment there. Um, I, I'm guessing a lot of this actually might be uh, reverse engineered. I'm just given that's Windows. I just noticing that anyway. Um, uh, where it's Windows and they specifically call out the free RDP alternative as open source. Yeah, this this is almost certainly closed source. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, more on the point though is the fact. Yeah, server would post this, and then if the server just posted the messages, can't say no. Actually, I only support these ones now, and supporting fewer, you could have that last format number set as something matching the first group of them change it out from under the client to be like, no, I no longer support these things, and then send one that will be used, or will pass that check. Um, or reuse it, sorry, because it was previously... That also kind of limits how far you can go, because you need to have, you know, n number of formats supported, and then drop that out. Um, which I feel like creates kind of an interesting scenario, if this were to be exploitable, but Ultimately, the challenge with this one is the only use is it calculates that pointer, gets a field out of that object, and compares it with one, which is kind of a limited use case. You can potentially determine if a value is one. I would be interested to see how somebody tried to leverage that bug. It is a limited prim primitive for sure, and it's only a read, not a write. Yeah, so basically, like, you can cast an arbitrary address to, like, this object and get this oracle, um, but it's it's a very I'm not sure you could do oracle. it quite arbitrary, because it's going to be relative. Um, so, yeah, so relative, but you can do it as far out as you want, so I... Well, that's what I'm not sure about, how many format numbers you could actually, because you have to have at least that initial send of... N number. So, say you want to write it or read at n, you'd have to send a format list of you know I have n formats that I support. So the index has to be valid at least once. 
I don't know if there's going to be a maximum there. Because I can uh, imagine there be being true. some maximum there, or even that just being like a uh, maybe a 32-bit integer or something there that it's expecting, um, and thus not being able to craft some that could hit the entire 64-bit address space. Yeah, without the code, it's hard to tell. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's... I mean, what it boils down to here is you get a very limited Oracle. Um, I don't know. It's it, it's always hard for me to say that it definitely wouldn't be exploitable, but this would be a really hard bug to take advantage of. I've been surprised so many times uh, in terms of what's exploitable or not and, you know, creativity. So, yeah, I, w I wouldn't say it's not, but I completely agree with you. It's it's a very weak prim You obviously you wouldn't get um this would not be all you would need. You would need more to it. Obviously, with just a read, you're only getting information disclosure. And it's a weak one at that. It is a weak one. Um, how does it handle errors? Maybe you could do something using information based off of like page vaulting, uh, leaking a little bit information about like structure and um kind of the general like very high level view of memory layout i have seen a couple things that were able to break eslr um by knowing kind of that very granular view of what the memory layout looked like in terms of what was allocated or not or what had pages assigned off to it and then using that they were able to break eslr so depending on how errors get handled here maybe you'd be able to figure that out also i don't know there might be some other bits that you can get out of this oh yeah i mean the, the main thing here is like the problem is where it's a boolean check there is going to be a lot of bytes in the heap that are just going to be like a zero or a one uh, i mean those are like the most common bytes you're going to find probably so having an oracle where you can see if something that you don't even know what it is is a one is you know, it's not yeah, well, doesn't really so, seem that useful. So what I'm thinking though is that, like, if you were causing a fault or something, uh, before that. So basically, the fact that checking is one, I'm not even thinking about that. Um, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you're saying like if it's not just, paged in or whatever, you yeah. could. Yeah. Um, that's actually interesting. That that's an interesting case. Um. Yeah, like, I'm just saying, like, maybe there's something based off of that load that you might be able to get. Um, you know, obviously, pure speculation, as usual, on this show. Because, uh, yeah, yeah just <laughs> checking for one really weak primitive. Maybe somebody has some creative ideas there, but that primitive, I don't know about. Feels too weak to me. Um the odds are if you do have something else you probably got some other more powerful primitives too and since this wouldn't be used alone uh but like i'm kind of i'm trying to think of other ways that you might be able to use just the memory access itself um i kind of like that idea of using like the page faults and stuff that's that's neat um but yeah beyond that i can't really think of any other ones but this is yeah I think it would be fair for you to classify it as unexploitable or just file it away and uh, yeah, try to look sure. for something better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As much as um, we're talking about it, I do like, I'm not really second guess guessing the author here who's played around more with it. 
Yeah, um, like personally, if I found this bug, I would just look for something better. I wouldn't like waste time trying to exploit this and make it useful. Uh, while it would be really cool to do so, I just don't think it would be worth the time put into it. Um, the second bug was an arbitrary malloc bug found in two different places. The clip RDR channel for clipboard sync and the RDP RDR channel used for redirecting access from the server to the client file system. Um, and these were just based on the user being able to pass fields that would be used in calculating the size for a malloc. Um, the one in clipboard being fairly unmitigated, you could alloc up to 32 gigabytes or so. Um, the one in file system access being a bit more restricted since it's calculated using a 32-bit value, so only 4 gigabytes or so. But um, yeah, you can get arbitrary values passed to malloc and you could possibly cause a DOS or whatever. Um, but you don't really get a useful memory corruption there. Um, you could just be annoying. So, yeah, yeah. you're annoying. Um, also, on that second one, you can only hit it once per session. Uh, like, you can't hit that one multiple times. Yeah, um, so that one's even more limited. Yeah, that that one's limited. I mean, if you've got a client that's only, like, 4 gigabytes, it's because this is a client attack, it's definitely possible. Like, you know, that you've got a client that only has, like, Four gigs of memory possible 32 gigs though is much more likely to be problematic yeah so there's a few issues there uh, it's worth noting like while the issues that we covered aren't really exploitable or aren't really that good um, as vulnerabilities for exploitation the researcher did find stuff that was useful but as we mentioned earlier um, they just couldn't go into details on those yet so yeah, you I know. do kind of like this, though. At the very end, they're like, to recap, my findings led to CV, whatever, details coming soon. Great recap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like you were saying, a lot of the value in this post is like the on the fuzzing setup and stuff. The vulnerabilities are kind of, you know, outside of speculating on like how useful that first one could be, they're, they're not really too interesting. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see if the details come soon on those other findings and you know, if they come out and, and they're interesting, we'll we'll cover them on the podcast. Yeah. All right, so we'll get into some of our Azure bugs for this week. Um, these come out of uh, Talos Security. Um, these are an Azure Sphere security monitor, which we've talked about a few times before. Um, security monitor, I believe, is like their their trusted applet or whatever that you can issue syscalls to. Um, the first one here is a potential vulnerability. Um, in the SM syscall commit image staging syscall. We'll get to the potential part later, I suppose. Um, oh, I mean, I'd actually rather do the potential now and then the vulnerability. Get it out of the way now. Um, okay. And it basically just seems... Basically, uh, Microsoft did not and could not reproduce this issue in their production uh, environments or uh, even in their pre-production environments. Talos wouldn't test this there because they can brick devices. Uh, so they only did this in the development mode of the device, which does have some additional access. Uh, so basically, unconfirmed, possibly there, nobody knows. Yeah, it's one of those situations where it's really hard to test because your target environment is different than your test environment. Um, and just due to the nature of Azure, it's it's hard to like jump that gap, um, especially in this case. So... Yeah, like this SM syscall commit image staging syscall is a part uh, is like a part of a set of syscalls used for staging um, both non-firmware related apps as well as firmware related ones um, and committing images. 
Um, though with the firmware, you're required to stage a base manifest. Um, so for example, like a recovery image manifest. Um, and the issue is kind of related to that. Um, so obviously, like what you're essentially doing here is like a firmware update. Um, and the idea with these manifests is they're supposed to be signed. Um, that way people can't install whatever firmware image they want. Um, so you can't use an arbitrary image or manifest that isn't signed. Um, they first tried a downgrade attack by trying to install an older firmware that would be signed, um, but it was just older. Um, though that didn't end up working for the whole firmware. They did manage to get it to work with the trusted key store image, though. Uh, for whatever reason, with the trusted key store image, there was no like version checking, um, and you didn't need to supply a manifest or anything. So by downgrading the key store, you can now brick the device because Pluton won't be able to verify any firmware, like newer firmware images after reboot because the key store is outdated. Yeah, and, um, uh, Pluton so just uh, since you toss it in there, Pluton is like the secure processor on these devices. So this is their like Azure Sphere is their like secure IoT devices. Um, Pluton yeah. secure processor, root of trust, validating the firmware image. So what this essentially gets you is a DOS or a brick. Um, that said, there are some important caveats with this bug. Um, like Z mentioned earlier, you know, they weren't able to reproduce it in pre-production or production environments, and Talos can't really test outside the development environment. Um, and part of why that is, is to access these syscalls and test for the bug, you need kernel privileges or Azure Sphere Cap update image capabilities. Um, so you would need like a fully working exploit chain, a chain to test this in production mode. Um, so yeah, a bit unclear if this is a vuln outside of development, but still, it's one of those weird bugs where failing to consider a downgrade or versioning um, can lead to an issue. Though, unlike some that we've seen in the past, this unfortunately just leads to denial of service. Um, you're not going to get the ability here to exploit a previously patched vulnerability or something, which is the like more common route and goal with finding these types of downgrade attacks, but... Yeah, I mean, it's there. Um, the I mean, impact, though, was, is pretty small, I think. Yeah, it impact's kind of small. I'm not sure how popular using Azure Sphere really is. Um, it, it, I don't know if I want to say it's just not considerate. Like, I feel like because Trusted Keystore is basically being operated on differently than everything else, it seems like... Um, I feel like there's a reason why it's different, and it's not as simple as they just didn't consider downgrading it, because they do have the downgrade protection elsewhere, and Trusted Key Store is this edge case, um, along with, I think, uh, there's one other thing that you could hit, I'm trying to see it here. Um, it, it was like a, it was another like surf related thing. Uh, it was another image that you could hit. It doesn't really matter, um, all that much here, but yeah, I don't know. It feels like there's maybe more of a reason behind why than just they didn't consider downgrading. Um, obviously they yeah. didn't consider the downgrading here, but, that but I been feel like. Yeah, like I feel like there's a somebody made that decision is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And given the fact that you need such a high level of privileges to access these syscalls in the first place, I could I could see that being a design decision where they're just like, well, 
Um, maybe somebody could break the device doing this, but it's a really weird thing. Anyone who has this kind of access, it would be really stupid for them to do that. Um, you know, obviously an attacker could put themselves in that position potentially, but I mean, not... you know, it's it comes back to that idea of trade-offs. Like it, it probably wouldn't have been worth the design overhead of trying to account for whatever problems they might have had. And I could easily see them just going like, yeah, whatever. Um, On the attacker side, like, you know, these are IoT devices. Um, these are in, you know, client homes or whatever. You know, somebody's maybe randomly got this device. You want to cause some havoc. Well, not you, but like uh, an attacker wants to cause some havoc. Breaking the device, requiring that manual recovery. That's actually kind of a big ask for a lot of people to go in and do that. Um, like, yeah, I feel like, like the why, fact that... Like, uh, go ahead. It, it seems like just kind of... If you want to troll somebody and make their stuff useless or something, maybe it's okay. But Yeah, like it's not old really school getting you much virus data. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's not really doing much useful for you as an attacker. You're just annoying somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's not doing much, and it requires, like, that high-level privilege. You, so yeah, you'd be going through a, a compromised lot of device plus to, to DOS somebody. Like, you, because you, you need the uh, the particular capability in order to even access these syscalls, so. Yeah. Uh, so getting into a much more interesting Azure issue... Uh, we have an info leak up next in the GPU uh, GPIO set pin config ioctl um, command. Um, more aptly, though, this is actually like an out of bounds access. Um, in the command, they copy this GPIO pin request object from user space and use the line offsets um, buffer that's passed in, at, or sorry, field that's passed in as an index into this desks array. Um, but there's no bounds checking on that index. Um, so you can get access to any area of memory as a GPIO description object. Um, the reason they pinned this down as an info disclosure is because they only found one useful avenue for exploiting this issue, and that's in a permission check um, that would check for like Capsys admin, um, or it would check the uh, UID and see if it matched the, you know, the target UID of the process, uh, or sorry, the UID that the process is running under. Um, and they basically use this permission check as an oracle to check if a given address has a value equal to the UID. Um, so, you know, checking if it returns e-access, if it fails the permission check or something different if it passes it. Um, and they use that to egg hunt for a cred structure uh, by looking for 32 contiguous bytes of that process UID because the cred structure is going to have like the UID, group ID, effective UID, like all those things, there's like a bunch of different UIDs, but for the most part, they're going to be the same. Um, so by just, you know, using that Oracle to scan memory for um, the process, you would, um, you could get the offset of that cred structure and where it's at, and you can leak the address of it, um, which I think is a pretty cool way of abusing the info leak. The vulnerability is not interesting at all. It's just an unchecked index getting through, um, but how it's being exploited here using the permission check as an Oracle that's pretty interesting. Um, it, it's a little bit unique to this bug. Um, it's fun. We've and seen I... like egg hunting and memory scanning before, but and you know even earlier in the episode we found that one with like just checking if something's equal to one. That one is kind of like terrible because like I said, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be one. But this one where you kind of have something more useful where it's the UID um, and you can use it to check sequential bytes. It it 
this one's a like a hundred times better as an oracle than the one we covered earlier. Yeah, and I was just gonna say I always love you know seeing the abuse on those security checks or like the security checks kind of what makes it usable here. So checking you know, if you're not capsis admin, I I just love seeing those those exploits that end up abusing that stuff. Um, Reflecting so security checks play. against the atta- uh, the yeah. product, yeah. It's just a nice place to have have an issue or be able to exploit something from. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, a, a cool exploit strategy to uh, to end the show on, I think. So yeah, uh, that's where we're going to end the show for this week. Um, thank you to everyone who tuned in. The VOD will be up on Twitch immediately or on YouTube at 6 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. We also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, more links on Anchor. Uh, for alerts of when we're going live and to join the community, uh, follow our Twitter and join us on Discord. Um, links for those are down below or in the chat. I'll put the Discord link now. Um, almost mistyped it. There we go. Uh, once again, I'll shout out the giveaway of a digital copy of Bastion's book, which you can check out in our Discord's giveaway channel. And yeah, uh, we'll be back next Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific for Bounty Topics, and next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for Binary Stuff. And we'll see you all then.